Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. League Apps is the leading youth sports management platform, providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. On a mission to bring the benefits of sport to kids everywhere, they go beyond technology to provide leaders with professional development and relationship building, and to work with sports-based organizations to address issues of accessibility and equality. To learn more, find them at League Apps com or as league apps on all of the social networks now here's the host of the show longtime soccer broadcaster and voice of united soccer coaches dean linky another in-depth and well-rounded show we kick off with roy gim who was pushed forward by the api soccer community a who knew roy gim is writing an article for dr j martin and soccer journal about how soccer affects the environment, some of the things we're dealing with climate change, and all great topics. We'll learn so much from Roy Gim. As you know, United Soccer Coaches sent over a great group to the Euros. That included their events manager, Erica Dyer. She talks about her time in England at the Euros and her time with United Soccer Coaches. Erica Dyer is an amazing person and a great staff member for United Soccer Coaches. And we end the show... Again, dedicating this entire month to Disability Pride Month and Kate Ward's Disability Allies Community. And we visit with Eli Wolf, who directs the Power of Sport Lab, a platform to fuel and magnify creativity, diversity, connection, and leadership through sport. Roy, Erica, and Eli all on the show. And it all starts after this message from our presenting sponsor, League Apps. We bet you didn't get into this business for the back office duties. That's why we created League Apps, the industry's leading youth sports management platform. So you can spend less time with busy work and more time doing what you love. League Apps provides organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. Go to leagueapps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. Once again, here's the host of the show, Dean Linky. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by League Apps. I am Dean Linky, and if you've been listening to the show, you know that Ashusak Swena, who heads up the United Soccer Coaches API Coaches Community as their chair, has done an amazing job pushing forward amazing people. It's no different today as we hear the story of Roy Gim, who's done some fascinating research focused on the impact of soccer on the environment. I wanna say that again, Roy Gim has done fascinating research focused on the impact of soccer on the environment. And we're gonna to get to that in just a little bit, but right now I wanna to get to know Roy Gim. So I'm gonna welcome Roy Gim to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome, Roy. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for having me on. I feel a little nervous being a, you know, a hum just a humble grassroots uh, soccer coach, but I've been called up to the first team. So I hope I do don't disappoint. <laughs> I, I know you won't. Every guest a shoe has pushed forward has been outstanding. So first off, I like to start with the Roy Gim elevator speech. Tell us, you know, where you grew up and where you are right now. Sure. Uh, I grew up in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, and I played a little bit of soccer later on as a special ed teacher. Um, I taught in a lot of different areas of the country, um, Omaha, Nebraska, Denver, um, Portland, Maine. Um, but I moved back here, back to central Maryland. I live in, uh, Frederick, Maryland, which is in the central part of Maryland, and uh, now gotten to fully in immersed into grassroots uh, soccer coaching, um, but I also do a little bit of freelance writing on the side. You know, Roy, before we do a really deep dive into all your research and learn crazy terms like wet ball, globe temperature, and find out uh, how you learn from the Ryerson brothers and all you learn from the head of turf from Major League Soccer, we'll get to him in a moment as well. You told me before we came on the air that your real fascination for soccer came in 2002 when the World Cup was held in Korea and Japan. What was it about that World Cup that really drew you in? Right. So before then, um, I have to admit that I, I wasn't really in tune with soccer at that moment in time. And you know how it is in the U.S. Um, I think people pay attention to the presidential elections uh, and politics maybe every four years and then tune out. But it's the same with the U.S. Um, the interest in the World Cup grows every four years around a World Cup. And then it sort of at that moment in time, it disappears. But when 2002 rolled around, um, I was living in Denver. Uh, I was couch surfing and 
randomly came across a 2 a.m. the Korea uh, Poland match. And it, I didn't even know Korea was playing. It was so fascinating to me as a Korean American to um, see people that look like me that were against the odds, you know, really competing against um, the best in the, on the world stage. And I was, I was really riveted. By the time Korea advanced, uh, sort of a Cinderella story, they, they advanced all the way to the semifinals before um, um, getting knocked out by Germany. Um, along the way, they, they knocked out uh, Spain and Italy, but that golden goal goal that uh, Ong Jung-won headed in against Italy, that blew my mind. And at that moment in time, I think I can pinpoint the moment I, I really was all in on soccer or football, as, he's, as people would put it. To go back to the 2002 World Cup, um, it, it did inspire me to become a, a Korea soccer supporter for the South Korean national team. I did a blog on um, South Korean soccer called the Tavern the Take of Warriors, and I, I was able to pitch, and, and I did get two articles into the New York Times uh, goals uh, online section, which uh, I can tell my grandkids about one day. <laughs> I took my editor, <laughs> and um, all, all thanks to uh, Jack Bell, my editor at the time. And where did you go to college? I went to James Madison University. Um, I didn't play soccer there. I played ultimate frisbee, but <laughs> gave me a little bit of you know conditioning background. That's you know simpatico with soccer. I've called a lot of games at James Madison and James Madison when they come into the Triangle. I call a lot of their games as well. They've got obviously when Dr. Martin was there, it was awesome. The NSCA game of the week on Fox Soccer. They had a record crowd there, so I always have time for pe for people from James Madison. If you remember, I came on talking about this fascinating research focused on the impact of soccer on the environment. And as I say it, I have to admit, Roy Gim, that's a broad-based topic, right? Research focus on the impact of soccer on the environment. Let's dive into that. What does that mean exactly? And what have you been working on? Well, yeah, it, as you say, it's it's a huge topic and it's so huge. It's difficult to really encompass. I mean, we could take five podcasts to talk about it, but it, we can boil it down for soccer coaches, administrators, and players into a couple of different uh, areas. But first, I wanted to ask you if, if you've been watching the Women's Euro 2002 20, tournament. Of course I am. Huge, massive women's soccer fan. Remember, I started as the press officer for the 91 women in the first ever World Cup, so I love women's soccer. Yeah, there we go. Well, you know, as you know, it's been hot. The performances have been great, but it's hot literally uh, where they're playing at in England. They just issued an extreme red warning for extreme heat. And July 19th, last week, Iceland and France played with two mandatory water breaks. Daytime temperatures there in Rotherham reached 97 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, the next day was 104 degrees Fahrenheit, but fortunately, there weren't any games scheduled that day. But I'll give you some context. Rotherham, usually in that part of July, maxes out in the temperature range of 70 degrees. So that is, you know, obviously, it goes without saying, it's not optimal temperatures for players. It's, it's really alarming. You look at the headlines right now, 100 million Americans under heat warnings, wildfires raging in 12 states. You know, as a coach, we look for patterns. And the changing climate is giving us a lot of signals to work with. Um, so I'm hoping my upcoming article um, is going to address how climate change is beginning to impact our game. But the forecast models of the future point to how we as coaches, administrators, and players are going to have to pivot. Briefly, I pitched this idea to Dr. Jay Martin at the Soccer Journal last fall, simply because I, I did notice a distinct change in our local weather patterns where I live in Maryland. There's more intensity. There's more frequency of the storms. Uh, Hurricane Ida didn't just flood New York, and it didn't just uh, catastrophically uh, hit Louisiana. It also affected Maryland. There was a picture from our local newspaper, the Frederick News Post, that really struck me. It was on the front page of a goalpost sticking out from the floodwaters. And that was a field where my own academy teams had played at in the past. And it, it just really struck me as this goalpost underwater as a canary in the coal mine for our sport. I start with this question. What ways is climate change affecting our game? From grassroots all the way to professional and international ranks. The follow-up question is, how can we adapt as a soccer community? Going even further, are there things the sport can do to slow down and outright combat climate change? I'm not gonna lie, this is a really heavy topic. It's existential. <laughs> I think about what the future looks like for my kids and it, you know, it can seem terrifying, but um, that's the challenge we face. But it's also about preserving the things that we love. Our game, the world sport, soccer, 
I think is something that I would like to preserve. I think there's a, there is, we're cautiously optimistic that things can change for, uh, to, to mitigate this. Um, team humanity is behind in the game going into extra time, but soccer is about hope and everybody loves a good comeback story. This is no exception. Let's even maybe back up the train just a little bit sure. and start from the beginning because okay. I know you've been working on this for quite some time. Yeah. I know that you also had an Achilles injury that sidelined you for just a little bit. So tell us the whole story. When did you start this research project? Who is it specifically for? Is it just for Soccer Journal or is it for other people as well? And tell us who you've interviewed. Share with us as much as you can about all of your research. Last fall, uh, when seeing the, the news of catastrophic wildfires in different parts of the U.S., extreme drought, and the extreme storms that, that happened that flooded other parts of the country, it just seemed like things were tipping into another level. And I was curious because parts of Frederick County, where I live at, flooded, and it affected our programming at FC Frederick as a club. So I, I thought to myself, this we can't be the only club that is being affected by this. I pitched this to Dr. Jay Martin, and he, he immediately greenlit this. I uh, talked to, the first place I talked to was Bo SK, um, and I'm, I'm gonna look a little bit of conflict of interest uh, alert here. Um, I'm a grassroots coach at FC Frederick as well, and he, so he's techni technically my boss. But um, he had some interesting things to say about um, kind of what the club um, was experiencing with climate change and maybe some ideas uh, about how to address it. He talked about the idea of maybe less travel. People will start to realize that not only, you know, does it make sense if you're dealing with COVID restrictions, but it makes sense for families economically and for the environment to just travel less, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and that, that conversation hadn't really... Um, I would say it's in its beginning stages, um, and it had been gone way the other direction, meaning people were simply, uh, and this, this is still probably the mindset that, that parents of, of elite soccer players are willing to travel whatever and, and convince themselves that it's necessary because of the way the tournament structures are set up to, to go find the best competition in, in different areas. Um, even though if you were to draw a circle around just the DMV, um, the, the level and quality of clubs and teams and players in this geography uh, is absolutely high enough to meet all of the player development needs of players of any level. So mm -hmm. what's really happening is the, the leagues and the tournament structures are creating this idea that um, you must travel in order to, to play this other great team and people are buying into it. But I think... As people start to think and become more aware, uh, that's that's going to change. Take another look at uh, all the different tournaments that, that and leading to fixture congestions, and maybe even adding to the the price point that makes pay-to-play clubs so expensive, exclusionary. One of the most unfortunate things about the the U.S. Uh, model is the exclusionary effect of the pay-to-play system. One of the most significant cost drivers is travel mm -hmm. far and away you know uh, if you have to get on a plane and then you have hotel costs and you have food costs and all this kind of stuff it just it absolutely makes the game out of reach for a number of many many, many families mm -hmm. um so yeah if you tighten the um the boundaries the travel boundaries you know a bit um you should be able to lower costs as well which would bring more people into the game and get you in communities that, you know, traditionally may not have the resources to do this, um, you know, uh, significant travel all over the U.S. He pointed me to a couple of different directions, including talking to his connections with um, three brothers who coach at uh, a couple of different clubs across the country geographically. Um, it was interesting to me because the brothers, Tim, Rob, and Rich Ryerson, um, they all have excellent CVs and soccer pedigree. And they each have their own climate change story to tell. I started off talking to uh, Rob Ryerson. He was closest to me. He's the day-to-day uh, -day operations um, director and coach at Ellicott City Soccer Club in Maryland. They were hit, unfortunately, with almost back-to-back -back catastrophic 1,000-year floods. And the city was decimated in 2018 in particular. Their office was completely underwater. They lost all their equipment. Um, it was a logistics um, kind of a, 
a, a real challenge for that club. And he talked about immediately having to pivot, um, which I thought was very interesting. Operationally, we just had to really pivot and, you know, concentrate on how we were logistically going to continue with training sessions and matches um, because we just had no accessibility and didn't even really forecast, especially after the first one, didn't really have to forecast, you know, what, what we would have to do if something like in an event like something like that happened. So the logistics was a big issue to deal with. But the good news uh, came, the light at the end of the tunnel was other clubs offered help and with fields, coaches, equipment, and it was a kind of a, a, a very neat rallying point for the entire community. We had to rally around each other to, you know, our equipment supplier gave us extra shirts and we were able to pass those out to everybody in our rec program. You know, we had a couple other sponsors just help out with anything that we needed. So it really kind of brought the community of our group together in a way that it would have never happened if that didn't happen. Those challenges helped to make the team bond stronger as a, a rallying point. Um, so I guess that was a, um, maybe a positive end note. But to this day, uh, they're still affected because they're op they still don't have an office. His brother, uh, Tim Ryerson, who did found Ellicott City F um, Soccer Club, he went on to become the general manager of Ballistic United in Pleasanton, California. Now, over there, they have a different problem. The heat and the wildfires, um, the drought conditions, it, it's affected their club, uh, not directly. None of their fields were burned, um, but the clubs that they played against in their leagues, um, they were affected. Um, some of their fields were burned. They've had to cancel games. Um, because some of those teams playing, uh, even for home matches, the away teams didn't have enough players. Their, their families had to literally flee from these wildfires. So it's definitely affected their program uh, over the last three years, noticeably. It's been a big issue, actually, the last several years um, with the fires there. And, and uh, it, it actually does affect our... So we have a whole, on our website, we have a like a uh, air quality index uh, and what we do in terms of, you know, what that is. And, and then obviously, um, you know, what, whether or not we'll play depending on that number. But in terms of the smoke itself, I mean, we've had the last three years in the summer. Um, so like July and August and even into September where there's a threat, you know, daily, depending on the fires that are happening, I would say Northeast of us and the, like, for, for example, this year was Tahoe area. And uh, depending on the winds, uh, it can blow through our town, which I'd have to look exactly how far that is, but it's a, it's a good three-hour drive, I think, three-and-a-half-hour drive. And uh, so, yeah, we've had to cancel practices, games, um, where, you know, we just, we just have to cancel because of the smoke. Uh, and it's happened more frequently in the last three years. And... Um, yeah, it's just something else. It's it's something I've never experienced before working with the club there in Pleasanton. Basically, we have a health officer. So pre-COVID, we didn't have a health officer. Now we do. And he's dealing with um, smoke. He's dealing with COVID, with smoke, um, and with the heat quality index. He's noticed that because of these, uh, the frequency, it sort of brought on a conversation of whether they need to try to build indoor facilities. I mean, that's how extreme it's gotten over there. Finally, his brother, Rich Ryerson, when I talked to him last fall, at, the, at that moment of time, he was still the coach for University of Las Vegas, UNLV. Um, but it would end up being his 11th and, and final season for UNLV. But at the time, his team plays and practices in extreme weather conditions. But interestingly enough, I discovered that the dry conditions over there allowed them to continue to play and practice. And that's because it points to humidity as, as a game changer here. Talking to Rich Ryerson, there was some fascinating anecdotes that he was able to tell me. I, I assume that the extreme heat in Las Vegas would really affect their training um, times and practices and games. But in fact, um, it was quite the opposite. The, he was still able to practice in this extreme heat. And the reason is it's so very dry and arid there. 
that's another rabbit hole. It points out that humidity is a game changer for the other parts of the country where, where heat and humidity can be a deadly factor. And I'll get to that in a moment. But because of increased heat waves that are happening, the science is pointing that it's also increasing humidity. With those areas, I'm going to shift over to other parts of, of the country, maybe particularly the South, where there's high heat and humidity. It's, it's a deadly combination because the air is so saturated with water. There's less ability for athletes to expel sweat. Let's go back to Las Vegas. For his players playing in, the, in a desert environment, a dry environment, the opposite is happening. Because it's so arid, there's more room for their athletes' sweat to evaporate. There's a cooling effect, therefore, and they're able to continue to play. If we shift back to the rest of the country that um, is more humid, that's a, that's a big problem. There is less room and ability for that sweat to evaporate into. And so the players are taking on more heat because there is a less of a cooling evaporation factor. Think about when, uh, after you take a shower, uh, when you step out, immediately you feel cooled off. That's the same process that's happening. But again, with the increasing frequency of, of heat waves, um, we're seeing in the South uh, athletes, um, let me point out to the American football realm, at least 50 high school football players have died from heat stroke on practice fields across the US in the past 25 years. Now that number might not seem uh, spectacularly big, but keep in mind, six players died in the last year alone. So the frequency is starting to, to tick up. Um, and that's as a result of, again, heat and humidity plus sunshine. Um, so I'll get to that later as, as, um, as it pertains to something called the wet bulb globe temperature. I mean, say that again three times. It's, it's really difficult to... Uh, <laughs> wet bulb really globe temperature. That's right. Yeah, you got it. You got okay. it. <laughs> and that's something that as, as coaches and administrators, we're really going to uh, you know, lean on heavily in the future. But um, I'll get to that later. All these different... Um, overlapping conditions is, is creating really a big concern. We can look abroad to Europe. Uh, there are studies that show in England, there's a number of lower league, lower tier clubs that, that have been underwater from um, rising sea levels and storms. The projected model, the Athletic did a piece on this, where the current climate models show that by 2050, over a quarter of 92 football league clubs, that's the top four, four divisions in England, can expect partial or total flooding of their stadiums every year. That includes Chelsea's Stamford Bridge, Southampton St. Mary's, West Ham's London Stadium. David Blatt is a, a writer over there that, that has talked a lot, or did a lot of research on football and climate change. He did his own projection models. By 2050, in Germany, Werder Bremen's Wester Stadium, and in France, Bordeaux's Matmut Atlantique stadiums, they will be flooded annually from sea rise. And I mean, practically those areas are underwater by 2050. So it's, it's pretty alarming from a, an administrator and from a player standpoint, this points out the need that we have to pivot. So I, I wanted to also explore in the article ways that different soccer clubs from the grassroots to the professional levels can adapt to this. So again, we're gonna, we, we really have to take a look at flooding, for example. If you happen to be in a soccer club where you're in a floodplain, there's, it's not the end of the world because yes, you could get your, your soccer pitches underwater by flood, but with proper drainage, I talked to Jared Minnick, who is the, the head's maintenance guy for the Germantown Soccerplex, one of the best fields in the country. And he's also the lead major league soccer consultant on natural grass. He was pointing out the fact that if we can retroactively install proper drainage, that you could flood one day and then a couple of days later, the field will still be in good condition to play on. A grass field is a climate mitigation tool. You think about all of the fields across the country that could be climate mitigation tools and, that, and being natural grass surfaces. They filter the water that goes through them. They don't pollute because even the fertilizer that does go on them can be organic. They're sequestering carbon all day long. They're cooling the atmosphere. Like we have an opportunity at two acres at a time to be able to sequester carbon, to be able to, to mitigate climate change, just so people can get out of their own way and realize we just need to properly build and maintain our natural grass fields. 
So that's one way soccer clubs can adapt. And there's plenty of other avenues in which grassroots clubs can, can look at. Tim Ryerson's son plays at UMBC now. But Tim uh, told me that a couple of years ago, his son played at an MLS next-gen game on synthetic turf. The surface temperatures there was 130 degrees. His son started, but was sobbed off only after 20 minutes. So, so he played his very first game out there. It was 130 degrees on the turf. He was a starter. They warmed up off the field. He was a starter. He had to come off with 20, for, for 20, after 20 minutes because he had a blister so big on his foot that he couldn't walk anymore. And when he wow. walked onto that field, he had no issues, no problems. He was just get, jumping on a field for a game. He came off the field, and he sent me a picture of the blister. I was like, oh, my goodness. He was out for two weeks. He couldn't play again for two weeks because of that 20 minutes that he spent on the turf when it was 130 degrees. I've never heard of heat blisters. Aren't turf companies making improvements on cooling their fields? Possibly so. But uh, one could also make the argument that there's a lot of greenwashing involved. This is something that we really should talk about because there really hasn't been too much um, on the subject matter. But I think as soccer coaches and administrators going forward, um, this is going to um, be something that's really going to be impacting our game. And we really got to be starting to think about how we're going to adapt to that. So when is the article going to come out for Soccer Journal? And what do you think will be the biggest takeaway from the article? They publish quarterly, so maybe it'll make the next cut. I, I, I'm very close to finishing it. So it's all down to Dr. Jay Martin when he's able to, which edition he's going to be able to put this in. Um, but hopefully for the one coming up, um, for the upcoming one. The biggest but, takeaway. The biggest takeaway I, I'm hoping is that while this – this is a really um, incredible challenge for soccer coaches and administrators and players. I think there's ways that um, we've got to be able to um, pivot in order to, I'm stealing that from um, Rob Ryerson. We've got to be able to pivot so that we can um, be able to play this game safely and really take decisive action so that um, not only the human race can survive, but that we can continue to play the world's number one sport. Tying it all together, let's go back to wet bulb globe temperature as we both said it really quickly earlier. Um, what is important to know about wet bulb globe temperature? In the past, we may have relied on uh, the National Weather Service heat index, which just takes into account heat and humidity. But um, the wet bulb globe temperature is a measurement, and there's a little weird uh, instrument that takes into account the regular temperature from a thermometer. It's taken account the humidity level, it's taken account, uh, and it's got a measurement for direct sunlight and cloud cover and solar radiation and wind. So all of these data points help to give, again, coaches and administrators um, a better calibrated tool to help figure out if we're playing in dangerous uh, heat conditions or not. Uh, and again, we go back to humidity as, as a, um, a deadly combination along with heat. Um, I'm going to quote Larry Kenny. He's a professor at uh, Penn State University who's done a lot to study heat and humidity on athletes. Um, but strictly dealing with heat, that's the most deadly of all weather-related fatalities, much more than tornadoes, hurricanes, all other things combined. But then he goes on to say that um, in areas that are more humid, where again, athletes, it's harder for them to um, expel sweat and, and get that um, temperature cooling range on their body, that temperature cooling effect is lessened. Um, he did some incredible research that shows there's a, there's a temperature point, 88 degrees Fahrenheit, along with 100% relative humidity, even in shady conditions, that is a very dangerous point in which um, could lead to heat stroke and even death. So I think we really are going to have to rely upon the wet bulb globe temperature and that measurement to really um, lean on as we try to figure out how, when we can play, if we need to pare back training or even cancel trainings um, to preserve the health of our players. The wet bulb globe temperature range, one important factor is the sun. It is adding, uh, when, when taken account, 
not only the heat of the air, the humidity, then you've got to factor whether there's cloud cover or if it's really sunny. If the players are playing in direct sunlight, um, that's going to add up 15, up to 15 degrees Fahrenheit uh, on players' bodies. And that could add to dangerous playing heat conditions. So the wet bulb globe temperature um, measurements, those, those funky uh, measuring devices, they have an ability to also measure the sun radiation onto, onto the field. So that can be very helpful in, in getting a big picture to whether to play or not. Roy, really impressive. And I think even just as impressive is the fact that we now have this API coaches community led by Ashu Saxwena, who you like me know that the man is brilliant and he's engaging and is pushing people like you forward. Can you just talk a little bit about what it means to be a part of that community that gives you this opportunity to one publish this article in soccer journal and two come on this podcast? Well, yeah, I, I think it's, it's incredible that, that we have this. It's a, it's a new um, community within United Soccer Coaches. And, uh, you know, the resources that, that Ashu and, and the community was able to, to put us in touch with, with you. Um, and, you know, I, I didn't even think about coming onto this podcast. The, the opportunity presented itself, and um, it's quite amazing. It's, it's an honor. And, I, and again, um, these are resources that, that I just have never thought about. But as a person of color, um, you, you know, I guess I, it does come into the fore um, when you hear about the, the, the increase of, in violence um, against Asians in, in, in the United States. And I, I think that's maybe possibly why this community of soccer coaches, the AAPI, um, had came together. And you know, I'm glad for it. I think there's strength in numbers, and uh, hopefully, we can recalibrate uh, our country to be um, more united as a pluralistic uh, society. Uh, that would really benefit soccer because uh, soccer is a, is a global game. We are stronger for having that kind of diversity. And you know, if the United States is ever to, at least the men's program, is ever going to win a World Cup, it's going to take a sort of a man on the moon type of a, a mission mindset. And I think part of that was going to include talking about diversity and ways that we can be able to bring more people into the game. And Roy Gim, thanks for this incredible research that you're doing. I look forward to it being published in the Soccer Journal and looking forward to uh, having you back on the United Soccer Coaches podcast to you know really dive into everything that uh, you've discovered. Thank you so much, Roy. Thank you so much, Dean. Good stuff, Roy, and we're just getting started. Coming up next, the events manager for United Soccer Coaches, Erica Dyer. Performance analysis is now recognized as having a crucial role to play in any coaching program. The United Soccer Coaches Performance Analysis Level 1 Special Topics Diploma will provide coaches with real-world examples of how analysis is being used to enhance the individual player development process and maximize team performance. Additionally, successful candidates will achieve Level 1 accreditation as an Applied Performance Analyst from the International Society of Performance Analysis of Sport. Register now by visiting the Master Course Schedule on unitedsoccercoaches.org. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by League Apps. I am so thrilled to be with one of my favorite people, not just with United Soccer Coaches, but favorite people, period. She is the events manager for United Soccer Coaches, and really, she is the glue that holds us all together. I'm talking about the great and talented Erica Dyer. Erica, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Hi, Dean. Thank you. Well, part of the reason I wanted to have you on is to talk about Generation Adidas International and your recent trip to the Women's Euros, which is still going on as we record this. We're a couple hours away from Germany playing France to see who's going to meet England in the final. And you went over with a bunch of coaches and a lot of talented people, including Jeff Van Dusen and Angie Eliasson. Can you put into words the experience? Yeah, it was a great 10-day experience. We had 20 coaches from all levels of the game, youth, high school, college, came over. We were three days in London, and then the rest of the time in Manchester, we got to tour Chelsea Stadium, Manchester United Stadium, Manchester City Stadium, and then they had a number of education sessions with the great Janet Rayfield, um, Becky Burley, Celia Slater, 
Bill Bessett came in for a couple days, and then we had Brett Ledbetter zoom in with a session with Bill. So it was a great 10-day experience for all. Can you explain the levels of the 20 coaches? Were they mostly youth coaches, college coaches? What kind of levels did they have? I would say the majority of them were youth and high school. We did have some college coaches, but if they were college coaches, they were also club coaches. So they definitely all ranged. Okay, perfect. For you, the highlight from a soccer point and the highlight from a personal point of being over there, can you give me both? Yeah, absolutely. I think the highlight for soccer, we saw Sweden twice. So the second time that we saw Sweden, we were kind of just waiting to go into the stadium all at one of the the local pubs right outside the stadium. And their supporter section just came chanting in and it was the coolest experience. Hundreds of people dressed in yellow and, you know, Sweden gear. They had the, the drums and just like the excitement of like seeing them coming in and then in the stadium. I think that that was a really cool experience that I've never, I've never been a part of before. So that was really awesome. And then personal, I've never been to England. So it was really exciting to be over there to experience London and Manchester. I definitely am looking forward to getting back sometime soon. Did you go with some tea and crumpets at some point? We did fish and chips, kind of all, all the gamut. All right. Well, Erica, I came on and I know a lot of people give me a hard time for overdoing it, but in the case of Erica Dyer, I'm not overdoing it. You have always been someone that's been a rock for me. I know you've been a rock for Jeff Van Dusen. You've been a rock for somebody in the association. So I'm definitely not making anything up there. I want people to get to know you a little bit better, Erica. First, how many years have you now been with United Soccer Coaches? About eight and a half years. Eight and a half years. Okay. So I know you grew up in Massachusetts. So tell us your story, where you grew up, where you went to college and how United Soccer Coaches found you. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in um, East Hampton, Massachusetts, Western part of the state. I went and did my undergrad at Bridgewater State, which is about 40 minutes South of Boston. And then when I graduated there, I was convinced I was going to join a PR department of a professional sports team. Well, that did, that did not happen. Um, so I decided to go right back and kind of get my master's. I was like, it was a great opportunity to just go right back to school. So I got my master's in public relations at LaSalle College in Newton, Mass. I was about halfway through that program and I wanted to be in sports. So I applied for a bunch of sports internships. NSCA at the time, the communications manager emailed me and said, hey, we saw your application. We'd love for you to come and intern for the the three months or whatever it was right after the 2014 convention. Did that internship. They asked me to stay on longer, help out in the communications and the events department. Um, Jeff had an intern at the time that had fallen through and they were going into their second year of the summer symposium. So he just kind of needed some some help. So we were supposed to split it about 30% events, 70% communications, and that quickly changed. Majority of my time was focused on events. And then leading into the fall, it's kind of already looped into the 2015 convention. And so I had asked Jeff if I could stay, kind of finish my internship and my master's with him. And right before the 2015 convention, he offered me a full-time job. Since I've been in the events area working for Jeff. Yeah, and you really have become the czar of events. I mean, the last convention you ran at Erica, so knowing that you had this PR undergrad, this PR master's, and now I'm calling you an event czar, how do you feel about that transition? Because you're really good at it. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it kind of just it happened. I still feel like I'm that intern that is still learning, and I every day I try to um, learn from all of my coworkers and colleagues, um, but Yeah, it was, I was standing on stage at the president's reception last year and it kind of really hit me that I'm, I'm here and I'm, (laughs) I'm the one in charge and running it, obviously working with Angie and um, still learning from Jeff, but yeah, I definitely, it's a crazy transition, but it's been, it's been a fun ride. I feel like, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but uh, obviously I've been out to Kansas a long time. And I've been with the association for a long time, as you know, even probably before you were born, calling the Fox Soccer Game of the Week. But I feel like I met you down on the lower floor in your old offices. And I remember you being bright-eyed, enthusiastic then, and you're bright-eyed, enthusiastic now. Do I have that right? I feel like I I met you when I came out there one time. Do I have that right, Erica? Yeah, so I did do my my like year of internship at the old office. So yeah, we were on the second level. 
um, at Ann Ave. Yeah. Do you remember meeting me there? Because I remember meeting you for sure. Yes, I do. Who can forget Dean Linky? <laughs> Yeah, everybody for sure. But uh, I appreciate that for sure. All right. Well, let's let's tease Philadelphia a little bit because I know you're already planning for Philadelphia and people don't realize that. I mean, you're planning well over a year out, right, for every convention. Yeah, I would say we take about two weeks off, kind of just like debrief and unpack when we get back from the convention. And then February is we start for that next year. We actually are kind of dual planning right now because we are going to be in Anaheim in 24. Um, and so we haven't been to Anaheim before. So we're kind of doing both. Um, but yeah, we are thick in planning for um, Philadelphia. We're really looking forward to it. And Philadelphia is an amazing, amazing city for us. We love to bring our convention there. So we've been there a number of times for site visits and it's going to be good. I think that Kansas City was kind of that like starter coming out of COVID um, getting people back together and just like being excited. But I think Philadelphia is really going to be that big, like reunion that we're all back together, kind of ready for the next year of soccer. Three more questions for the super talented, super bright eyed, super ambitious and super kind Erica Dyer. The first one is back to your personal life, because I know your family is so important to you. You're super tight with your brother and your sister and your family. Can you just put into words what your family means to you? Your family is really everything to me. My whole family is back on the East Coast. I get back there as much as I can, but my family is like the driving force that kind of gets me through. And um, actually, we'll see them in a couple of weeks for the first time in over a year that I've kind of seen all of them. So I'm very excited. But yeah, family is like number one to me. The name is United Soccer Coaches. When you hear those three words, Erica Dyer, in just one sentence, what does United Soccer Coaches mean to the events manager for United Soccer Coaches, Erica Dyer? I can say it in one word, family. Oh, perfect. So that ties right in. And then finally, <laughs> you have truly played a big role in the development of this podcast. You have been there, I think, almost from the starter. It certainly feels like, but I feel like you've definitely stepped in and kind of had your heartbeat on this podcast. And I love doing it every week. You know that. And I definitely like to make sure there's diversity as well. What do you like most about the United Soccer Coaches podcast, Erica? I think it just the range of people that are on there, the stories, the experiences experiences. Going through COVID, I kind of jumped in and helped um, a lot when there was transition in the staff. And just to kind of see the, the people that were on there, the excitement of just being able to get on and talk about their stories. It just, it's an amazing platform for our members and our coaches to kind of come on and share their stories. Well, I don't feel like I could have said that better. And I love your answer. I got chills on that one, Erica Dyer. I always enjoy talking with you. This is long overdue. Thank you so much for appearing on the United Soccer Coaches podcast, for never seeking the spotlight, but definitely deserving the spotlight, Erica Dyer. You're a true gem. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dean. We're not done as we continue to celebrate Disability Pride Month, courtesy of Kate Ward, the chair for the Disability Allies Community for United Soccer Coaches. She brings us the great story story of Eli Wolf. You'll enjoy that after these messages. This is Dean Linky, longtime college soccer play-by-play -play man, reminding all college soccer coaches to amplify your upcoming season with the United Soccer Coaches College Services Program. Register now for the 2022-23 season and gain access to valuable resources you can use all season long. From educational programming to general liability insurance, the list of member benefits is endless. Make sure your program gets the recognition they deserve through All-America, Scholar All-America, Staff of the Year, and Team Awards available for College Services members. Don't miss out. Early bird registration ends October 1st, so sign up today by going to unitedsoccercoaches.org. Does it feel like all you're doing to manage your team, club, or league is busy work? If so, League Apps can help you get back to doing what you love, delivering a powerful yet simple youth sports management platform. From robust registration and payment tools to automated communications and other software integrations, League Apps saves you time and headaches. Less busy work, more time doing what you love. Go to LeagueApps.com to learn more. League Apps is proud to be the presenting sponsor of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Lee Gaps. As you know, if you've been listening during the month of July, we've dedicated the entire month to disability 
Pride Month and the Disability Allies community led by Kate Ward. Kate has delivered big time guests. It's no different today as we're joined by Eli Wolf, who directs the Power of Sport Lab, a platform to fuel and magnify creativity, diversity, connection, and leadership through sport. Eli has co-founded the research education and advocacy initiatives, Disability and Sport International, Athletes for Human Rights, and the Olympism Project. Eli serves as a co-organizer for the Athletes and Social Change Forum with the Muhammad Ali Center. Eli is an instructor with the Sport Management Program at the University of Connecticut. He is co-founder and advisor to Sport and Society Initiatives at Brown University, and he is affiliate faculty with San Jose State University. Eli was a member of the United States soccer team in the 1996 and 2004 Paralympic Games. He is a graduate of Brown University and has a master's in Olympic studies from the German Sport University of Cologne. An impressive bio, and Eli Wolf joins me now. Eli, welcome to the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Awesome. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. So I know we're talking to you from Wellesley, just outside of Boston, but Let's uh, get to know you a little bit better and start with kind of an easy one. And that is, how did you get involved with soccer? And then what was your experience like on the para-national team? Yeah, for sure. No, I played soccer from a very young age, like four or five years old. I was out there. I had a stroke um, at two years old that impairs my left side of my body. But I still by the, got right back up running, uh, you know, everything. I just can't really do throw-ins so well. But, um, but yeah, soccer, I also did a lot of racket sports so like tennis and table tennis and, um, but soccer kind of became my thing. And then I, um, I was growing up in Washington, DC, but I actually came up to Boston to Milton Academy uh, for, for high school. And then I went to Brown for college, but I, um, I was spotted playing soccer in high school and uh, someone, a colleague, a mentor, Sebastian DiFrancesco, uh, who's a Paralympian in table tennis? He uh, he told me about soccer, and uh, connected me to the to the tryouts, and then the rest is kind of history. I got really involved. Uh, me and Josh McKinney, who's kind of been a Hall of Fame finalist. Uh, Josh and I were kind of the two. Kind of, uh, I was a striker, and he was midfield striker, and so we would score a lot of the goals, and we had a great time, and it was a great great experience. And but for me. Uh, I just was always really passionate and committed to issues of social justice and inclusion. And so my experience with the Paralympics, I always kind of, I got really interested in how to make things better, basically. I want to go back to your Brown days, because before we came on the air, you said that you got to know Mike Noonan really well. Of course, Mike Noonan is the reigning national champion head coach now at Clemson, somebody who wanted it and who got it, and it's certainly well-deserved. Can you talk about the connection you had with uh, Mike Noonan while you were at Brown? Coach Noonan's major big part of my story, and uh owe him a lot, you know, to my journey. Um, but he, um, basically, I came on to the uh, Brown team. I was basically like a walk-on, and they knew they knew that I was involved with the Paralympic team at that point, and uh, they allowed me to kind of train and be a part of the team, and um, and it was really a great experience. And then also, um, Coach Noonan, when I started to make some connections to the fact that U.S. soccer at the time was not so involved with uh, disability or Paralympic soccer or any of the different disciplines. And I was actually, I, one of my undergraduate uh, research projects was to, with Hank Stein, actually I did it with U.S. Soccer, um, but, uh, but Coach Noonan was the one to introduce me to, uh, to the U.S. Soccer family and, and uh, kind of entree into uh, some of the ideas that I had and some of the um, proposals that I made and that were planted now more like 20 years ago, but um, but yeah, Coach Noonan was just always really supportive, always encouraging. And even when I when I when I was in college and I was traveling with the, the Paralympic team uh, for different competitions, World Championships, Pan Americans, he was always really kind that I could bring um, Brown University apparel and things, and uh, so I could represent the team. And and then the players, you know, we had some really great. Corey Gibbs was there uh, at the time. Uh, Doug Ullman. Jeff Walker, him, a lot of the great players, uh, and uh, Derek A-Frame. Derek A-Frame was uh, part of the team 
as well. And so it was just a lot of great people. And uh, but yeah, it was a great experience. And yeah, I, I do. He kind of got me off on a, a really great path, a great mentor. I love that. And I love that you're dropping names. That's what we like to do on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. So well done, Eli. You were involved. You touched on a little bit. I'm glad you mentioned Hank Steinbrecher, who is beloved by me. And I keep in touch with him all the time, particularly now as he's having some health issues as well. We try to keep yeah. tabs on him. But you were involved in the creation of the U.S. Soccer Disability Committee. Can you walk us through this and its importance, Eli? Through this project that I did um, and through my kind of awareness of kind of where U.S. soccer fit with regard to disability um, soccer, I... Um, I proposed and I worked with some others, um, but it was really Hank. Hank took me on as kind of a, a mentee and um, and really supported the, it was like a two-page concept proposal um, that we really try to bring all the different disciplines and all the different stakeholders that are involved with disability soccer um, to get them to be more a part of the U.S. Soccer Federation family. Um, and uh, And basically they welcomed that and we constructed a committee um, that's, you know, a small group. Um, and we had some of our first early meetings. Um, we, you know, prepared some documents and, and really helped create some awareness about the different disciplines of CP soccer, amputee, the deaf disciplines. Um, you know, now blind soccer has come onto the scene. Um, and so it was just a great way to kind of have a, a place, you know, a, a place to situate, a place to communicate, um, a place to celebrate and, and, uh, and really gather the groups together to kind of have a shared agenda, if you will. And, you know, it's been a great, you know, uh, evolution, a journey and, um, you know, different, different members of the committee, different initiatives. Um, I chaired the committee on and off over the years and um and now ashley hammond is the current chair and a lot of different initiatives and and projects have come on but yeah i think one of the greatest things has been just to get the different organizations as members um so you know even recently with deaf soccer and and now deaf soccer becoming full national team status and then even just with the cp team and more recognition for amputee soccer and, you know, all these different disciplines. It's my, my passion and my commitment is kind of a holistic one. It's, it's about recognizing the diversity of disability and, and also seeing that this is not just a disability issue. This is about inclusion more broadly. So when we're seeing issues of equity and inclusion, not only in soccer, but across sports, you know, that's an area that I've become in my professional career has become involved in and, but yeah, soccer was sort of my initial, um, some of my initial work um, at the same, you know, I was involved with some other projects early stages, but, but uh, soccer was definitely one. And, you know, it's great to see that it's still going and being able to see that kind of legacy of some of the seeds we planted and, you know, things we didn't think about back then, you know, now they're now taking off. And, but yeah, that, that's kind of a, a little bit of the story on, on, the, on the committee. Great to hear the passion and wisdom of Eli <laughs> Wolf, who directs the Power of Sport Lab. And there's some exciting things, Eli, going on at FIFA right now in regards to disability inclusion. Could you expand on those things and your involvement? Yeah, no, it's definitely um, an area of commitment that FIFA is exploring, and they're and they're taking on more initiatives. Um, they formed a, a working group um, that I'm a part of, I believe Stuart Sharp is also, there's, you know, kind of a global group of experts and leaders, you know, the a champion at FIFA is Joyce Cook, you know, who herself has a disability and she's a senior executive at FIFA. And uh, she was the founder of CAFE, which is an international organization that works on disability inclusion within, particularly in Europe, but even globally. Um, particularly focused on not only on the player experience, but also on the fan experience and, and uh, employment. There, there is this working group. Um, there's also, I've been a part of a kind of a, a global network around disability football globally. So that's been really exciting to see that there's just a little bit more recognition and momentum for how FIFA, UEFA, you know, other international bodies can embrace disability soccer, disability football. Um, that it is an important 
constituent area that, you know, it, it's kind of gained some critical mass and um, some different relevance. And again, I think it does go back to this area of growth within sport more broadly around diversity and inclusion and, and um, recognizing the different stakeholders, uh, particularly from on the gender equity side that I think it's helped the disability conversation. Uh, but yeah, there's definitely more people getting into positions of leadership, um, positions of influence that can make sure that disability gets articulated and, and not forgotten about. So, but yeah, I think some of our work in, in US soccer has also helped to, uh, to show kind of some best practices and in some ways forward. Indeed. Now, this is kind of a tougher question in that I need you to go back to the past, then also look to the future. And I'll ask it this way. What disability projects, Eli, are you most proud to have already been involved in at the domestic and international level? And then as you finish, what disability projects are you most excited about in the future for domestic and or international level? Sure, that's a great, good question. Yeah, sometimes it's kind of reflecting back and thinking of some of the different projects and, you know, both education and advocacy. And I mean, honestly, the soccer has been a great source of pride and, you know, really happy to have been a part of, of that journey and so many friends and colleagues and being, being a part of, of that whole initiative. I mean, some of the other areas of, of kind of, a, you know, influence or it feels that really great to have been a part of, um, I would say in particular, at the international level, you know, having been a part of the United Nations um, work, um, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities back in 2008, obviously still ongoing. Um, there's an article of the convention, Article 30, which addresses the rights to inclusion in sport, recreation, physical activity, and play. And, uh, and having been a part of that, um, I think that's was a really significant landmark just because it had such a global impact and really sets a, a standard for all of sports um, to be inclusive and to work to strive for that. So I think that that's probably internationally is, is kind of a, you know, still being a part of that whole effort. It's still ongoing. Domestically, I would say probably two things. One would be uh, the Casey Martin Supreme Court case, you know, having been a part of that case and having seen that through and uh, being a part of that, just because it's such a significant case that's still, you know, in all law schools and you know, everyone learns about the Casey Martin case. And so um, having been a part of that and really helped to um, sh show the broader impact of, of disability inclusion in sport and, and um and then I would say the more recently um, kind of a really, it was really exciting to be a part of it. And um, it was actually a sort of a long process, but it uh, finally happened. So back in many years ago, we proposed to Major League Baseball that they change the term disabled list to injured list. And just because to reflect that the actually what it is, because it's not a uh, the, the athletes are actually injured; they're not disabled in that context. And then, in uh, just a couple of years ago, we revisited it. We it just didn't happen for a number of reasons. It just it was supported, but it just never happened. But then, just a couple of years ago, um, we actually kind of revisited it with Major League Baseball and uh, and the commissioner, and um, actually Billy Bean, the the head of diversity and inclusion for uh, Major League Baseball, not the stats you know a guy from billy bean but the right but the diversity inclusion billy bean who's amazing he um he uh he helped with the commissioner's office and we were able to get that change from 100 years it was 100 years in place and we were able to kind of get that changed um again it's just a, a small thing but kind of the what it says you know and, and how it it what it reinforces and we thought that it would be important that the correct because all the other leagues use injured list. So we thought it would be important that uh, Major League Baseball kind of align with that. Um, yeah, there's a couple. And, you know, it's kind of always fun to find new projects. And I mean, the Muhammad Ali work, I mean, outside of disability as well, some of those things. But, um, but yeah, I'll probably stop with that. That's awesome. Now, what is the most important thing, Eli, you think coaches at every level need to recognize to build inclusive environments for those 
with disabilities because remember this is the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Yeah, and I think that's you know the coach's question and also, you know, kind of going back to like what is out there for the future. And so I think I can probably tackle those together because I I do think that it's it's related. And I think that part of it for coaches or part of it for all stakeholders is is just a little bit of the empathy piece, a little bit of the just being human and uh and recognizing that on a team, a team is always made up of diverse people and diverse backgrounds. And, and so to incorporate an understanding of, of disability inclusion is as part of that team and to check in with the players and to check in to be able to really show an understanding of disability, even if you're not like a, a full-fledged expert or whatnot. It's just some of it's just common sense of like how do you make in terms of how do you really see making the best out of your team and I I would say that when you're trying to make the best out of your team then you should really have an understanding of of disability as part of the mix of that and also in terms of how it can enhance the team how how can it be actually a a really a value added and I would say in some ways that's really that's at a microcosm level with it as a coach but in many ways it's the same thing at a macro level that with with sport organizations with with teams, with leagues, with where sport, you know, trying to get sport to embrace disability as part of diversity and inclusion that, you know, I think we're seeing a little bit of a tipping point. You know, we're starting to see that disability is not a, uh, a taboo. You know, it's not a, an area that we're seeing as a liability, but we're really trying to see disability as a source of, of innovation, as a source of opportunity, as a source of to do better for your team, for your league. Just a couple of weeks ago, we, we held a really cool meeting of all of the professional leagues with their diversity and inclusion um, leaders. Um, and I think it was probably the first time that these diversity and inclusion leaders from each of the leagues have come together to talk about disability. So I think that was sort of a, a, a landmark moment. Uh, and hopefully we'll build on that and we'll see more and more Within the Olympic and Paralympic space, you know, some historic things happened uh, with regard to um, the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee changing its name. It was the U.S. Olympic Committee, and now it's the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Um, and then also in terms of equal pay, so for athlete Olympians and Paralympians who medal in the games, they now receive equal amounts for um, gold, silver, and bronze. And that was not the case until 2016 or 2018, I think was the first time. Um, so we're seeing some of these strides. Um, you know, we're also seeing, you know, I would say more, more awareness, more recognition of not only Paralympics, but also Special Olympics and also the Deaf Olympics um, and how they fit into the picture. But overall, I think we're also seeing that disabilities everywhere, you know, whether it's in the fans, whether it's in coaches, whether it's in administrators, like disability is just a normal part of the sports culture um, and that it has to be an area that we are comfortable, evolve, you know, that we can become more comfortable talking about and, and bring in, you know, experts and people that can help us. And, uh, but I think that's the future is that it becomes more of a, of a common topic and that these kind of solutions are more um, proactively engaged from where we were 20 years ago, you know, for the last, particularly I would say the last five to 10 years, there's been a lot more, but there's also a lot of opportunity for growth. So hopefully the next, you know, five to 10, we'll see even more. So proud to wrap up Disability Pride Month and giving the platform to Kate Ward and the Disability Allies community for United Soccer Coaches. Today's special guest, Eli Wolf, who directs the Power of Sport Lab, a platform to fuel and magnify creativity, diversity, connection, and leadership through sport. That's a powerful statement, Eli. I definitely want you to make another powerful statement for people with disabilities to rise up and seek opportunities what's your message to them kind of goes in all directions right i mean i think that people with disabilities you know to kind of embrace their power and embrace the advocacy and and not be shy you know and to feel that that pride you know i think that whole movement around disability pride um so there's that dimension and also 
I think it has to come from coaches. It has to come from leaders, from uh, administrators, from parents, families. Um, it really has to be a source of pride for everybody. And I think that's been the paradigm shift that we're seeing. And um, instead of the, the pity and the, the feeling of stigma, like shifting that narrative and, and really embracing disability as just another part of the human experience and another part of, of you know, in many ways, we're all, we all have disabilities in different ways. And so just seeing that as just part of how we navigate the world. Finally, as we finish our time, you are doing some amazing things. As you remember, it took me a minute or so to read your bio. Is there a way that people can follow you on social media or some of the projects that you're doing, Eli? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm individually, you know, Eli Wolf 10, <laughs> that's my number 10. So uh, Eli Wolf 10 uh, is Twitter. And, uh, but you can also follow our disability and sport project, distance sport, and then of course, like the broader work, power of sport lab. So, um, but yeah, always happy to, you know, always connecting and always, you know, building out new ideas. So, you know, thanks for the opportunity to chat today. It was really great. Folks, that's Eli Wolf, E-L-I-W-O-L-F-F-10 for Twitter. So make yeah. sure uh, you follow him there. Eli Wolf, you're doing some great things. And um, I really appreciate you sharing your story, including overcoming a stroke at two years old to go on and do amazing things to make it a better world, quite frankly. I really appreciate it, Eli. Well, thank you so much for being on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I want to thank Eli and all of our great guests. I also want to thank Bailey Conklin, Brandon Milburn, Jeff Van Dusen, and all the great folks at United Soccer Coaches, as well as our producer, Colin Thrash. For each and every one of them and all of you, I'm Dean Linky. We'll see you next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Lee Gaps. Thanks for listening to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Lee Gaps. Lee Gaps is the leading youth sports management platform providing organizations with the technology and professional development they need to run, grow, and win. To learn more about Lee Gaps, find them at leagueapps.com or as Lee Gaps on all of the social networks. And to learn more about United Soccer Coaches, visit us at unitedsoccercoaches.org.